1: This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at PurdueGlobal.edu.
2: Welcome to From Scratch, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Michael Rollman. I'm a writer, but I've spent the past 25 years in professional kitchens translating that craft for the home kitchen. This is a podcast about cooking. In each episode, we'll talk with one chef and one non-chef about the same theme. On today's episode, we'll be exploring the theme of authenticity and what it means to make authentic food. For our guest chef, I visited one of the most decorated chefs in San Francisco's Bay Area. He shared his astonishing story. We'll learn about his ascent from being a boy in a refugee camp to Section 8 housing in Oakland, to becoming the chef owner of the most prestigious European-style fine dining restaurant in Oakland, and why he turned back to his roots to open two casual food joints that feature his mother's traditional recipes. I'll try and recreate one of those dishes, which uses a technique that flies in the face of traditional cooking rules. I'd never encountered it before. But first, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Krishnendu Ray, one of the most brilliant minds in the food world. I asked him to be a guest on this podcast because he focuses his research on the supply side of the food world rather than the consumption side. He's also the perfect person to ask about what it means for a food to be authentic. To start, I wanted him to define a word we don't think much about, but we use it often. And in fact, it's incredibly loaded. Ethnic. Let's talk about
4: that word. Uh-huh. Ethnic. Good word. Bad word. You yeah, know, it's a, it's an interesting word. It comes into play by about the 1950s, especially in journalism, and it's a way to think about cultural difference without falling into the trap of race. So there is a sense that there is white, and then there is black, and then there are ethnic people who are kind of somewhat in between. So to give you a typical example, who like French food was never considered ethnic. It was foreign, it was exotic, but it was high class, upper class. Ethnic food is supposed to be the food of mostly poor working class migrants, uh, and so that is one of the categories, uh, one of the problems of the categories now. So you can't really have really high priced ethnic food. That's the presumption. Yes, that's been the historical presumption. So if you, if it's very, even now, if most people, if you say high price. Uh, people have a sense that it can be authentic. Uh, So if you're charging more than 10, 12 bucks for anything, uh, it can be uh, authentic, uh, ethnic. So there's a kind of a funny trap there, you know? So you can cook very good food. And my argument is that kind of sets up a limitation to what kind of ingredients you're gonna use, what kind of skill you're gonna bring. Because the price includes basically the three major thing, which is rent, which is huge in any city and then uh, the kind of ingredients you're gonna put into it and the kind of labor costs, okay? That's why if you trap ethnic food or food of the ethnics as cheap food, it is very difficult to break out of those Mm -hmm. barriers of good food.
2: But certain cuisines don't stay categorized as ethnic. So that brings us to a major focus of Dr. Ray's work. He's developed the really useful phrase, hierarchy of taste.
4: I use the uh, hierarchy of taste as a phrase to think about how American notions of what is good food and what is expensive food has changed over time. So what I'm really interested in a hierarchy of taste is this question of how do Americans, how and why do Americans change their mind about what is good to eat and what is not good to eat? and how that has changed American history. Dr. Ray helped us
2: look at a few examples from American history that can give context to our search for
4: authenticity. I'll give you an example. See if you read New York Times 1870, 1872. There's a lot of discussion about German food. And German food is this food that is, has kind of f- weird things like uh, schnitzel. And it says, and the New York Times describes saying, it's in fact, it's just a veal cutlet uh, with a weird name called uh, schnitzel. And uh, it is all, you can eat veal schnitzel for 15 cents Okay, in 1872. And there's a lot of discussion about German, for instance, uh, beer halls. And the Anglos in New York City are very kind of suspicious of the Germans because the German beer halls up and down Bowery, they find that children are there, women are there, because the Germans drink with the family. Mm-hmm. Very different from, say, the Irish or the Anglo right. pub culture, tavern culture, which was a much more masculine culture. Okay, So that there's a sense of this weird people with a bit of weird culture. Some of it is exciting, but most of it we should not do. And despite the skepticism of their social practices,
2: and I did not know this, German became the second most used language in America.
4: German was to the 1930s and 40s in the U.S. what Spanish is to the U.S. today. Really? Okay. The most dominant language, uh, by the way, long before that, Ben Franklin was worried that, in fact, he was going to be swamped by the Germans because he was in Pennsylvania, remember? And who, who we come to identify as the Pennsylvania Dutch who are really the Deutsch, okay? And so German kind of this antipathy towards Germans is going to turn into this kind of massive pressure on uh, on kind of naming of foods. That's when the naming will change from things like Frankfurter to hot dog to way to Americanize these names. And Germans are going to be in some ways written out of the American script, but my argument is, in fact, most American food is Germanic food. Think about lagers, and think about the cheese. Think about hamburger. Hmm. Think, in fact, it is. It in some ways, German case is a very interesting case, where what used to be in some ways a foreign ethnic marker, uh, in this case, in quotation marks, uh, uh, in some ways is made invisible by, in fact, most of us. By the way, most Americans, the largest so-called uh, ethnic category of Americans are German-Americans. There are 50 million German-Americans today, Hmm. okay? I'm one of them. Yes, exactly. And so the German case is an interesting case where it is both uh, suppressed, but also it becomes ubiquitous. Most American food, in the sense, is Germanic food with some differences.
2: It's certainly true that German culture has quietly influenced major food trends for America. It's hard to picture, though, the 4th of July without brats, burgers, and a cold American lager. Fortunately for those Americans who may appreciate other flavors and textures, Japanese cuisine and those who prepare it have fought
4: a long and difficult battle for relevance in the United States. There's a beautiful study of Japanese in Hawaii which is where we have in Hawaii and on the West Coast, we have the first Japanese coming in as immigrants and relatively poor immigrants. And around 1900, if you talk to Japanese, and there's a beautiful study done by a sociologist in Hawaii, the Japanese are saying, yes, we know our food is inferior. The children learn in school that they should be drinking more dairy and we should be eating more protein to make us big and strong like white people. And, uh, but you see, I have a bad habit, I'm of that generation, so my children's uh, habits are going to become more American, uh, and my habit is going to stay Japanese, and their health is going to improve. This is about 1900 people are talking about. Hmm. And of course, Japan uh, becomes an enemy in the Second World War, just as the Germans, by the way. The Japanese case, similarly, there's a repression of taste for Japanese things that works towards the sense that Japanese food is kind of inferior for inferior people. That begins to flip only in the 1980s, once Japan emerges as a major economic power. And remember, I don't know whether you remember, that's the time Americans are talking about just-in-time production, how Japanese uh, capitalism is so much agile and more powerful. And And, it's when sushi came into the market. Exactly, totally, and that is, and by the way, think about that, where sushi, Japanese food comes in is mostly midtown. Even now, you go to in Manhattan, the the high-end Japanese restaurants are often in midtown because this is where the Japanese managers, who are now really highly valued, would eat. Okay? And so sushi comes in and suddenly we begin to flip and of course by then also nutritional knowledge begins to catch up with things like fish and fermented food and you begin to say Japanese food is the best food in the world <laughs> and then we, re- re- we see the data that they live one of the longest in the world so they must be doing something right.
2: Okay, but the big one for me is Italian food. I married a woman whose family hailed in the late 1800s from Napoli. Italians swarmed in through Ellis Island in huge numbers from the 1800s through, really, the 1940s. And their cuisine is really,
4: really influential in America. What would America be without pizza and spaghetti? What's that story? Italian is a very good example because, in fact, Italian is one of those cuisines in American history that falls from the top. Uh, uh, flattens out and then climbs back, is climbing back up right now. Mm -hmm. What I mean by is this, say with Thomas Jefferson, Uh, who in some ways brings in macaroni and cheese, okay? (laughs) And there's a sense that it is, this is a Italian thing. It's part of the travel through the Mediterranean and bringing in macaroni, which is kind of a generic name for any pasta at that point of time. Often they would be registered in restaurants as a slightly Frenchified mac and cheese. So that was considered very high, high culture. Okay, say let's say around 1800. What is fascinating is this, this is what happens is, from about 1880 onwards, you have millions of poor Italians coming in. And what you see is this astonishing disdain towards Italian culinary culture. From 1880 to about the 1940s, by the way, nutritionists and all kinds of reformers, progressive era reformers, look at Italians and say, oh, they have a terribly inferior food culture. They eat all this pasta, they eat all this garlic, very garlicky, by the way it's described as, with all these spices and inferior foods like all these weird greens that you get nothing out of. And uh, most importantly, that is what makes them thirsty for all this alcohol. And so to cure them of their uh, uh, alcoholic tendencies, we have to cure them of their food and we have to change them into basically a kind of a white sauce, bland food people, okay? Thankfully, they fail to do that. And over the next, say, two generations, as Italians move up from a working class population to a middle class professional, they become politicians, they enter the uh, movie business, for instance, they're very important players in the movie business, Um, and uh, they become culturally visible. And you begin to see the slow shift nutritional knowledge begins to catch up with the Mediterranean diet, arguing that, in fact, the Mediterranean diet uh, may be, in fact, terrific for people. And by about the 1970s, you begin to see a revaluation of Italian food. So my argument is that poor people's food are often seen as inferior by people. It has nothing to do with Uh, the food. Mm -hmm. It has to do with the attitude towards class and race. That's what the whole hierarchy of taste argument is. Like if you talk to an economist, it's about supply and demand. So, the price is shaped by supply and demand. Mm -hmm. That is correct. But that's an abstract model which is worked by taking time out of the model. As a sociologist, my work is how do people come to demand and why do people come to demand some things at certain prices and are unwilling to pay that, say it is very difficult for most Americans today to pay 100 bucks for Indian food we're willing to pay for French, we're willing to pay for Italian, but we're not willing to pay that kind of a price for Indian food. Uh, and you can say that about Thai, you can say that about Vietnamese, and, and uh, you, we used to say that about Italian, and that's changing. And that's kind of, for me, that change over time of demand mm-hmm. is the most fascinating story about American cuisines.
2: Thinking about how certain cuisines evolve in the minds of Americans over extended periods of history really helps keep some things in perspective, but adding time to the equation of supply and demand makes it much more challenging to define what makes a food authentic. In 1880, when Italian immigrant workers were eating spaghetti with meat sauce for their daily meals, in my wife's family they called it macaroni and gravy, was that authentic Italian food? Or what about when a cuisine successfully climbs a social ladder and becomes, quote, high class? Is the food of Massimo Bottura, a three-star chef in Italy, closer to authentic Italian cuisine? There were critics who wouldn't show up at his restaurant because they said it wasn't authentic Italian. He has much more skilled labor in his kitchens, uses more technique, can afford whatever ingredients and tools he needs or wants. Surely his expression must be more authentic with all those resources at his disposal, no? Dr. Ray helped put this discussion to rest, or at least down for a nap. He says there are two kinds of authenticity in food.
4: Yes, there are two kinds of authenticity. Okay, okay? talk to me about it. Yes, so I think one kind of authenticity that we, were, we are willing to pay for is in some ways the think of the chef as the artist, his signature, okay? Say a per se or a French laundry. OK, which is the idea of the perfect professional, OK, which almost think about it, he is not supposed to, the chef is not supposed to have any ethnic mark on him. It's just technique and ingredient and skill, pure world of, in some ways, the world of the perfect ingredient with the best skill in the world. OK, that's almost the opposite of the other sense of authenticity, ethnicity, ethnicity, oh, sorry, authenticity. So the first sense of authenticity is linked to the signature of the artist. And the other side of it is the idea that is this someone's grandmother's cooking? It belongs. So the authenticity there is a test of belonging to a community. okay? So it's in a sense, so in a sense at the bottom end of the market, we test it by, when we say use authenticity, we say, how is it, how similar is it to when I went to Mexico, and ate this in Puebla, or I went to Oaxaca and ate this. Is this similar or is that different? That's what we are saying when we are uh, thinking about authenticity at the bottom end of the market. Hmm. At the higher end of the market, we are thinking about authenticity as the sing- signature of the artist, in this case, the, uh, the chef.
5: My Thai name is Sumjit. Sumkit. Oh. Sumjit. Sumjit. Sumjit siabu that's
2: James Chef James Siabut. We sat down at a communal table at Hawkingbird, one of his three restaurants.
5: Yeah, James derived from my Lao name at home. My mom, I go by Gin at home, so Gin and James was kind of the closest thing mm.
3: gotcha. that
5: our social worker picked out. So, okay. culturally, I'm Lao, I speak Lao. Nationally, I'm Thai. Okay. But my, my father is 100% Lao from Bakse.
2: In 1975, at the end of the uh, Vietnam War, the neighboring Laotian government fell to communists. Many people saw the writing on the wall and did everything they could to get out, including fleeing into refugee camps. Beginning around 1980, the United States started issuing green cards to Laotian refugees.
5: Yes, we came from uh, asylum after the Vietnam War as refugees. Mm-hmm. We landed in Oakland um, in 1981. I was about two years old. Wow. Uh, never left. Still here. Like it? I love here. Yeah,
2: <laughs> It's home. James's parents so jumped at the opportunity and, and eventually settled in Oakland. In Oakland. Um, they both the proved to be industrious. So his father just worked just as an out. auto mechanic auto and his auto mother mechanic? as a cook.
5: So I was always around parents working with their hands. And I was a curious boy, you know, running around with sharp objects. <laughs> and, you know, babysitting after school program was being in the kitchen with mom. You know, segmenting onions, disseminating Thai chilies, peeling garlic, peeling shallots. I had the perfect little hands for it, so my mom put me to work. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, that was my weekends. You know, wow. and I remember uh, doing my homework on top of uh, p- bags of rice in a dry storage room, and wow. that's my was my first involvement
2: with cooking. And unlike the Japanese stories from Hawaii. The Lao community in Oakland did not shy away from their traditions around food preparation.
5: So, growing up in the Lao community, we always have this like, almost like a CSA, a group buy. Mm-hmm. So, in the whole neighborhood on 25th Street, I mean, the whole neighborhood was like Lao refugees. So, they would go buy half a cow, a half a slaughter, a whole slaughter and we'll divide it up. It's like, oh, so-and-so would like to have $100 worth. So-and-so would have $20 worth. And you get the whole thing, a little sack of warm beef bile, some blood.
2: But the most intense preparation was James's mother's homemade paddock, or fish sauce.
5: Which she'll make her own. We used to go out fishing in really? the Alameda like, uh, Crab Cove and she'll make her own fish sauce.
2: How would she make the fish sauce?
5: Um, sea salt, ice cream salt. Uh-huh. Um, layers of anchovies and small crabs, whatnot, and in a dark place, in a closet, (laughs) with uh, bricks on top of it to press it, and then, you know, you wait a year later, and
2: you have it. So that's what your house smelled like.
5: That's what my house smelled like, yeah. That's what my clothes smelled like. That's what I smelled like going to school. So you can only imagine, you know, being in elementary school. With a kid with a funny name of some kid, I wasn't James. And here
2: is where we discovered another version of Dr. Ray's hierarchy of taste. His mother eventually took a job as a cook at a successful Thai restaurant in Berkeley, California. She and her fellow cooks, mostly from the Lao community, prepared traditional Thai dishes for American diners. Eventually, the curious James asked her why. I was
5: like, wait, Mom, the food we're eating, i come never made it pass the kitchen. And her response like it's like no, 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 that's not what people want. You know, that's it's too spicy. It's like they'll probably think it smells and stinks. I'm like, well this stuff's delicious. So so what is the food we're serving? It's like, oh it's Thai food. I'm like, okay, but you never made pad Thai for me.
2: The answer that James received may not have been satisfactory, but he couldn't do anything about it yet. After the break, we'll learn about how James hustled his way up the hierarchy of fine dining restaurants and the surprising choice he made after he got to the top.
0: Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> <laughs> Give me museums. The park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
3: The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day, whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade. At the Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is, with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax. For the Mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day savings event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking Checking out The Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com delivery for details.
1: The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of.
2: Before the big craze of the celebrity chef in the 1990s in the U.S., there was a documentary TV series called Great Chefs of the World. Highly recommend it. Find it on YouTube. It was made by John Bayer and John Shoup out of New Orleans. And what made their program one of a kind was that they only filmed in real restaurant kitchens, never in TV studios. It was full of no-nonsense, matter-of-fact, detailed explanations of dishes by professionals Professional chefs just going about their business, mostly within very traditional French influenced kitchens. Young James loved it.
5: Right about sophomore year in high school, you know, so I watched a little bit more TV, and I remember watching uh, Chefs of the World, and I was seeing see a French kitchen for the first time on TV, and it's like, wait a minute, this does not look like my mom's kitchen. <laughs> like, wow, he just had to have a single speck on his chef's coat. He wore his nice toque. Copper, everything, stoves without flames. They're not. They're standing up to do prep. They're not sitting on little plastic stools, and they're not you know mise en place was not put into repurposed plastic bags from the market. <laughs> so I'm like, wait, restaurants exist like that?
1: What appeal to you about that? Um, I style just style of cooking.
5: To everything about it, um, the intensity, the focus, um, the discipline. Um, it Was just such a higher level that I didn't know of. Like I told my mom, like, I want to cook for a living. And it was like, she high say? school. She's like, you're nuts. <laughs> it's like, why? It's like, I was like, I actually enjoy it. And before that show, I was like, okay, I know where she's coming from. You know, the whole age, stereotypical Asian parent. We didn't come to America for you to be a cook. You know, why mm. don't you go to school, be a lawyer, be a doctor, and have a better living for ourselves, and not do what I, I'm doing. I get it. Uh, but, you know, I, you know, I think at that time, she was just glad that I wasn't incarcerated or getting in trouble with
2: other kids running in the street. She's like, sure. So James enrolled in culinary school at the California Culinary Academy. The first task that really blew his mind was baking, specifically the precision it requires. Thai or Lao's cuisine didn't use much dairy and weren't known for their pastry production.
5: So the I'm actually baking, and that's where I really fall in love with cooking was baking. Really? Because the science and the preciseness of it, mm. you know? Before, you know, mom's cooking was intuition. No recipes. Right. A little dash of this, a handful of that. You ask her for a recipe, like, yeah, a handful of this, a handful of that. That looks about right.
2: James loved the uniform, too.
5: So culinary school, like, really, like, was like, okay, this is, like, what I saw on TV. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> kind of confirmed it, right? right? You know, I got a uniform, got a Right. The tokes.
2: right. I know. Chef, learn, learn how to proper way of mm-hmm. French style yeah, cutting I, and sauce and making. introduced
5: yeah. like to the brigade and how that works, yeah, right? It was, like, Yes, chef. You know, it was it was just, it's different. It was like enrolling to the military all of a sudden. Did you like it? I loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I, I I wanted more of it.
2: After culinary school, James took the first job he could find. He cooked at a couple of pan Asian restaurants, which really helped him understand how to cook at higher volumes. But this still wasn't what he hungered for.
5: I still had this itch of French cuisine and European cuisine, man.
2: That's when a fellow cook recommended he apply to a hot new restaurant in town. He asked James if he knew anything about Spanish food.
5: <laughs> Spanish food? I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> I know Spain's right next to France. And, that, and that's that was about it. And that's about it. You know, he's like, yeah, he's, I was getting more elaborate details. It's like, yeah, he's doing this thing, you know, it's kind of molecular and, you know, a little bit of both. And it's a kind of, food's kind of Catalan. I'm like, okay, you say it was food of Spanish influence. So what's Catalan? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm like getting, getting deeper, deeper, Uh deeper into it. So um, yeah, so I got my car, drove down to Los Gatos, an hour drive from Oakland, knocked on the back door.
2: To this day, it's common to physically show up at restaurants not during service, please, and ask for a stage. which basically means they trail in the kitchen doing whatever is asked for free. This way, the kitchen and the stage get to know one another. James had shown up at a three-Michelin-star restaurant called Manresa, and Chef David Kinch gave him a shot.
5: Well, I remember walking to the kitchen for the very first time. It was like walking to, like, Starship Enterprise, <laughs> you know? It was like... St- like stainless steel for miles, copper pots and pans, a mold, like a, a bonnet stove. You know, wow. it's like, wow, this is a stove I saw on TV. It's like <laughs> no, no flames. I don't have to turn knobs.
2: <laughs> Many fine dining restaurants use stoves, which instead of exposed gas flames over graded areas, have what they call a graduated flat top, one giant iron surface with varying temperatures depending on where you put your pot. Hot in the center, Cool as you move out,
5: and I was like, "Okay, this is like this is like the major leagues." I feel like I just got drafted into the NBA or something. Yeah, <laughs> but of course,
2: it wasn't easy.
5: It Was rough first year. I it oh, was rough. Had, It was
2: just like a rude awakening. James was drilled in the traditions of a fine dining kitchen, many of which, at first glance, seemed pointless. Keep your white towel folded in four exact folds, with the thin orange stripe facing outward. Keep your small pans in your station at exactly ninety degree angles. Wiper cutting board after this cut, but not before that one. There are a thousand tiny, quirky details that are unique to each kitchen and chef. Also, because of the time pressures in professional kitchens, they don't really have time to explain why for all of them.
5: And I didn't quite understand it. I was just like, "Oh, it's just like busting my balls because I'm the new guy." But then, time after time, like it makes sense you all translate to what I food put on the plate.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: It's just one, one minor detail that contributes to the big picture. And that's why I need it. Ultimately. That's what you needed. it. Yeah, that, that discipline, being that mind frame. Well.
2: James eventually adapted and thrived. He stayed for five years, learned every station in the restaurant, backward and forward, and then knew it was time to move on, and did so with the encouragement of Chef Kinch. He then went and cooked for short periods of time at multiple prestigious restaurants in Europe. He got to the top of his game and was having a blast. Before he went back to Oakland, he traveled and ate.
5: just traveled around around, eating in as many Michelin-star restaurants as I could. That was For me, That was I coined it as my grad school for Colorado School. That's, that's how I wrote it off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I saw my credit card bills, you know, it's like, oh, this is grad school.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
5: Yeah, single diner, you know, in Paris at Pierre Gagnier. And yeah.
2: Was, I had a great time. He to, actually confused many of the restaurant staff. It's very rare to have someone come alone to extremely fancy restaurants in Paris and look so critically at each detail of every dish.
5: Everyone thought I, I was a Michelin inspector. You know? yeah.
2: <laughs> but this seemingly strange eating spree was critical to his success. He knew he needed to know exactly what goes into a meal at the most prestigious Michelin-starred restaurants. Absolutely. Upon returning to Oakland, he kept cooking while getting a plan together to open his own fine dining restaurant. You didn't have investors.
5: <laughs> I had investors, but we all friends. And the one disclaimer I had before the signing on, I was like, hey, this $10,000 dollars you giving me, I'm going to lose all of it, just let you know, and we'll still be cool, right? And it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a tax write-off. Don't worry,
2: don't worry. we'll still be cool. On a more serious okay, note, okay. James sort of was embarking like, you know, on a quiet like, path. So fine, you know? There just wasn't right. much fine dining you know, in Oakland.
5: But, you know, like, again, it's like, why not? Why not can a fine dining restaurant exist in Oakland? It's just no one's done it before. and you I, did I think, it. I think I'm, the, I'm the one to do it. So, His new restaurant yeah, so just,
2: would be called Comi, which is a name that I love. Comi is the name for the very bottom-level cook in a French brigade system. Basically means assistant. For James to name his gorgeous fine dining restaurant, Comey is playful and respectful. He's two decades removed from that position, and there are a thousand Comis who would be honored to work under James now. Comey just celebrated its 10th anniversary, which is a great run. Also, James has earned two Michelin stars for the past four years, which puts him among a small club. Of the approximately 700,000 restaurants in America, only 44 have either two or three stars from Michelin. Despite his humble beginnings, he's now in a great position. Dr. Ray helps
4: us contextualize this special club. And there's that network at the top. Mm-hmm. I would say that's a network of about 500 to 1,000 people. It's a very small network. That's a small network. It's a very yeah. small network. And in that network, there are some connections being made. Mm-hmm. It's like professors. Mm-hmm. I would almost call it peer review. Peer review amongst 500 uh, 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 chefs and, uh, and evaluators and journalists and restaurant critics. You can enter the world through that as a Michelin star chef. It's a, it's a signature of that you have really arrived in that peer, view, uh, peer review evaluation. Once you do that, then you're allowed a little more freedom to mess around and play with other categories of food. And especially if you're not basically a French or an Italian, uh, a very high-end chef, you'll eventually, there'll be some pressure in you to go back to your roots. When we come back, we'll
2: hear why James drastically reversed course after he reached the top. We'll hear how his mom made him question his hard-earned, high-end cooking techniques. And I'll cook one of his recipes in my home kitchen. One that, when he told me about it, I bought the book on the spot so that I could give it a roll. (laughs) After a couple of years of success at Komi, James noticed his mother wasn't doing as well as she'd like to be.
5: My mother was still running a Thai restaurant. You know, she was tired of the restaurant business. She was worn out, burnt sure. out, worked hard, too hard, and she wanted to leave. She wanted to go back, go home and raise water buffaloes and grow rice again and be with her family and the country life, you know. I don't blame her, you know, it's like time for retirement. Yeah. Uh, but she got stuck on this lease. And then I was like, okay, let me take the lease from you. And now let me deal with it. I'm going to sell it. Maybe I'll do something different. Kumi was, you know, we were busy at the time. Yeah. So I was like, okay, let's just do something. Maybe a Kumi bistro or something casual. Mm. And, but I grew up in that restaurant space. So I had this like sentimental yeah. value to it. Sure. I couldn't let go. It's like, okay, mom's leaving. It's like all these dishes that we cooked in the kitchen, that were not on the menu that we fed ourselves. I had no idea. I would never cooked them before, and I was kind of sad. I was like, this is a shame. The thing that made me fall in love with cooking, kind of turned my back on. Mm. Um, for many reasons, one it was like, you know, I was kind of embarrassed by my own culture.
2: Yeah, it's un- it's not uncommon. <laughs> it's like oh, I'm
5: getting tired of being fun of. You know, right, like, right. Grade right. school was like I'm over it. Right. <laughs> and but yeah, so I kind of felt like, man, I'm, it's
2: time to make up for lost time. So he decided that instead of a French-inspired bistro, he would open Hawker Fair. Hawker meaning basically street food. After remodeling, his mother's former dining room would become a hip lao restaurant, which honors his family's cultural heritage. The space is funky with neon colors, elaborate wallpaper patterns, and bright red folding chairs at the communal tables. The menu is designed to be shared among friends, and they have a tiki hour instead of a happy hour. But the hard part wasn't the decorating. It was learning his mom's family recipes.
5: But, you know, those flavors were really ingrained in my head. Sure. And I started to work backwards. You know, my mom's like, hey, can you, and she asked me, you want me to teach you anything? Let me know before I go back to home. I'm like, me being like, oh, I'm a mission star chef. I can figure mm-hmm. this shit out, right? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Wrong. Despite his many years of experience with the highest culinary technique, his initial tests were way off.
5: I was overthinking it. You know, like time, temperature, got everything on a gram scale, and just like too analytical. Like what's, what's one a, of
2: those dishes? Describe one of those dishes.
5: One of the dishes is making kua mi, which is like a, tha, a Lao version of pad thai. Kua is one of those noodle dishes where you eat at like Buddhist holidays. Every time you go to a kid's birthday, not a Lao kid's birthday, there's always Kuomi. And I was like, Mom, what am I doing right? It's like, well, you need not add enough oil to, like, how much oil you put in the, in the gourmet sauce? Did you put oil in the sugar where you're making the caramel? I'm like, what are you talking about?
2: We're, no, it doesn't work. James was shocked because here's what they've been teaching in culinary schools for decades. Caramel is made by carefully melting sugar in a heavy bottom pan. It's either cooked dry or with just a little water, enough to make the sugar the texture of wet sand, as they say. You've got to heat it very carefully, not stirring, just swirling the pan as the edges turn brown. If it gets too high in the sides, the sides can burn. You want to brush that down with a damp pastry brush. And then once you get it to the perfect color, then you add your fat, usually cream, and it foams up violently. It's all very sensitive and precise. James's mom was suggesting to do almost the opposite.
5: And i was like, you know what? I should listen to mom.
2: This sounds really bizarre.
5: So yeah, yeah. See, so oil. You have to fry the sugar. You start in a cold pan with oil, lots of oil. Lots of oil. And sugar, probably like equal parts oil. Equal parts
2: oil and sugar. And sugar and. And you cook it until the sugar.
5: It caramelizes and then. Oh, yeah.
2: Does it separate from the oil? I yeah,
5: see. it separates from the oil. Yeah, yeah. But it, it doesn't, doesn't crystallize or anything. It's these it fluid. It doesn't crystallize.
2: Yeah. Wow. I followed the done. recipe for James Kwame from his book, Hawker Fair. This is a simple dish of caramel and oil sauce with aromatics tossed with medium rice noodles and garnished with an omelet, bean sprouts, scallions, and cilantro. Ahead of time, I measured out all my ingredients, sliced the shallot, minced the garlic, and cooked the omelet topping. Now it's time to fry some sugar. I've never done this before, and it just doesn't make any sense to me. Here we go, half a cup of sugar going into a Dutch oven. And we're gonna put a half cup of oil in there. This is f-ing crazy. All right, so we've got, it looks like, uh, you know, pastry chefs call it like a wet sand look. It kind of looks like wet sand, but quite a bit more liquid than the wet sand. I'm afraid of stirring it too much because when I stir sugar and water or just plain sugar, it crystallizes, gets crunchy on you. And I guess that's not going to happen because they're all each all the granules are coated in oil because we added everything whole. Doesn't look like anything's. It's been about a minute so far. This is crazy. Yeah, the oils, it is little, it's kind of crystallizing. It's kind of clumping up and bubbling. Still bright white. I'm just gonna let it sit there and let the sugar do its thing. Now normally when I'm cooking sugar, I just tilt the pan and swirl the pan. Usually the edges start to turn brown first. There's some brown there. Starting to brown. See where the hot spot on the burner is. I'm gonna swirl it around. It's been two minutes now and it's starting to turn brown, as sugar will do as the oil heats up. Now the sugar is sort of really um, coming together and separating from the oil, but he did say it would separate from the oil. But it's still sort of a fluid paste and it's turning a nice, Gorgeous color, it's turned from granular to smooth, which means the uh, sugar is melting. And you want a nice amber color, because that's flavor. You want a little bit of bitterness, I presume, but not too much. It's kind of very cool. I think the deeper brown you get it, the more colorful we're gonna have it. But we're getting really close. What color is that? It's a deep, deep tan. And it's starting to foam a little bit, so I think we're getting pretty close. In fact, I'm gonna, I'm ready for the air mats now. And just to sweat these. And about a half cup of shallots,
5: a couple, couple tablespoons of garlic.
2: And then we're gonna let those sweat and cook. And James was absolutely right. The kitchen smells fabulous now. Okay, so now we're going to add the seasonings. We've got fish sauce and oyster sauce, and we've got soy sauce, and uh, maybe a half teaspoon of MSG. Mix it around. So now we've got our aromats in there. We've made a nice brown sauce with lots of uh, lots of uh, minced garlic and sliced shallot in there. And all these soaked noodles go on. They're pretty pliable. And now the sauce is, uh, the noodles are soaking up the sauce. It looks gorgeous. I love all these aromats in there. Yeah, powerful flavor. Look, I've never tasted before. Caramelly, salty, delicious. It's gonna be beautiful, I can tell already. Man, that oil and sugar is kind of transformative. It it, it it looks bizarre at first, but it makes so much sense in the end. The, the sugar caramelizes. You've got great control over the cooking of it. It turns a beautiful amber. It sinks to the bottom of the pan. But in, in the end, when you bring all the ingredients together, they all meld beautifully and coat all the noodles, and the noodles absorb all that sweet, wonderful goodness.
5: Yeah, it just changed my whole approach to kind of almost everything. You know, it's just like... There's got to be a different way to do this.
2: Yeah, if this, if I didn't know this, yeah. what else don't I know?
5: Exactly, exactly. It's like maybe there is a separate, different way, you know?
2: This is an amazing dish. I can't wait to introduce this to my wife, to my friends, to fellow cooks, especially the cooking sugar and a lot of oil. But for James, it means even more than that.
5: Oh, my God, like making these recipes, just the smells alone, like I feel like I close my eyes and I feel like, I was in that room when I was, when my mom was making, I was 12 or 10 years old. You know, all of a sudden, all these vivid memories are like, all of a sudden, I I knew what my mom was wearing that day. You could remember that? Just from that dish. Wow. Yeah, all of a sudden, just like takes you back. It's almost like a time machine.
2: Dr. Ray found himself craving a similar experience. He needed essential flavors that he remembered from
4: 7,000 miles to the east, and flavors that he had never prepared before. When I first came from India, in fact, I was a lower middle class Indian kid. Being a male, I never, I did not know any, uh, anything about cooking, you know. And so, partly is this nostalgia, and partly this absence that I could not find this food in the most of the cheap Indian uh, kind of Bangladeshi-run Indian joints that were in this town. There were three of them. So, this absence, in some ways, became the memory of that absence. So red chili flakes didn't do it for you? Red chili flakes didn't do it. I mean, some things works well with red chili flakes, like a a chard or something, right? But a lot of everyday, like my mom say, a fish curry with a mustard sauce, you know? Fresh ground mustard, a little bit of ginger, a little bit of garlic, and a lot of green chilies. Okay? And you just basically almost like steam it. That was just, A, impossible to get it anywhere. No one was doing it in terms of an Indian restaurant. And second, n- n- not, not the, any of the red chilies would not play that role of replacing that, that green, slightly citrusy uh, kind of the green chili uh, tastes. And what were you missing by not having those ingredients? Really what, what I was missing was the kind of a sensory memory of another place you know, sensory memory of my personhood. Because think about food, right? Food is the way we incorporate the external world into ourselves, which becomes us. That's what culture is all about. There's no other object we absorb like that, you know? Mm -hmm. So our sense of personhood anywhere in the world is built on these habitual everyday palates and flavors and senses. The way think about all the senses we use in uh, in eating a food, say in this case, uh, 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 fish, uh, say trout with uh, mustard sauce with green chilies, right? Is the it's it's the it's the palate. It's deep inside us, okay? It's inside us, the, the smell, the nose, especially retronasal smell, okay? And of course, touch, I, I, uh, I still do, when I am eating Indian food, I still use my fingers directly because forks feel like a cold metallic barrier mm-hmm. to that taste. Again, this kind of, this whole, what you can almost call what uh, an, an anthropologist, uh, David Sutton, calls uh, synesthesia, how all your senses are pulling together, Uh, and pulling together into some sense of personhood. And that personhood, remember, is my relationship to other substance and my relationship to other people. And that's what food is about. Food has the power to help us find
2: our long lost personhood, to connect the unconnected, to travel time and space. And one wonderful thing about the world of cooking is that we can pick and choose keep and discard traditions based on what we want for our lives. James Sioboot has done a great job of keeping vital family recipes alive through his work as a chef. And in terms of family traditions outside of his work, James just passed on a special one to his daughter, who's in kindergarten. I
5: have a walking school bus, and I walk my daughter up to school with like six other kindergartners mm-hmm. in her head, and then some other parents first week, you know. Go, oh, Emma, what do you do this weekend? You know, and Emma goes, My daddy killed duck. <laughs> I'm like, it's like, Oh, really? And it's like, What do you mean, Emma? It's like, My daddy killed duck. And then it's like, What does she mean? like, goes, oh, Yeah, we saw our duck this
2: weekend. <laughs> How did she respond?
5: Um, she just uh, looked in like, not in shock, but she'd like look in, in interest. She has like almost hypnotizing. Mm-hmm. You know, she'd been to the zoo, she'd been to the petting zoo, you know, took it to the state fair, you know, but for me, like, bleeding a duck, yeah. feathering it, right. you know, and then cooking it, and now she's eating it, so I think it brings it kind of full circle to her. Before
2: I left James and our delightful chat in the middle of the bustling hawking bird dining room, I had to ask him one more question. Fish sauce is one of those great essences that's like nothing else on the planet. I had to ask him if he has any homemade fish sauce projects going on in dark places at his home, like his mother did. No. I figured you got too much going on. You're not making your own fish sauce. I tried, but
5: wife didn't like it. I was going to say, that your wife not like it. She was not too happy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you to our guests, Dr. Krishnendu Ray and chefs James Seabrook. For more information, check out Dr. Ray's books, The Migrant's Table, Curried Cultures, and The Ethnic Restaurateur. Also, you will not be disappointed with Chef Siaboot's book, Hawker Fair. And if you're in the Bay Area, you could try any of his three amazing restaurants scattered across the hierarchy of taste. Our show is produced by Jonathan Dressler, Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis, and our supervising producer is Gabrielle Collins. All the music on From Scratch is by Ryan Scott off his album A Freak Grows in Brooklyn. Also, I've got a new book out called From Scratch about 10 staple meals and all they can teach you about cooking. We'll have a link in the show notes or go to Amazon or any independent bookseller. From Scratch is a production of iHeartRadio.
0: San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
2: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it.